We are taking a break. <laughs> Hello, I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. My name is Andrew Tevitt, and I'm postdoctoral research associate at the Centre, and today we're bringing you the final episode in our series of conversations about the challenges facing philosophy and Christian faith in the wake of 2020. Over the past year, many of us have been left wondering how to look ahead as we think about the increased visibility of systemic racism, the effects of the Trump presidency, and the ongoing reality of the pandemic. Focusing especially on old and new political questions, the series invites scholars and educators within and outside the ICS community to tell us about what's at the forefront of their minds as they contemplate what's worth saving in a post-2020 world. Today we're wrapping up our conversation about faith and political thought in the wake of 2020 by reflecting on the previous episodes in this series and exploring how these conversations might continue to inform our thinking and action. We've invited some ICS members to join us as we digest what these conversations mean for us as individuals and as a faith and educational community. Let's get started. Theron Tolsma, and I'm a junior member at ICS. I'd like to review and discuss the previous Critical Faith episode that featured Ron Kuypers and Gideon Strauss and talk about what struck me as most challenging and most gripping. The two central questions that were discussed had to do with race and democracy. First, Ron began with an interesting question. He asked, why has race not been taken seriously? Why had he not been taking the issue of race more seriously? A major part of the issue is the fact that it has, for so many, been a non-issue. Or at the very least, it has not been our issue. This constitutes a failure, and in this discussion it is particularly a Christian failure. So how do we come to terms with this failure? A key element of the response to this failure is tragedy and lament. Ron mentioned the quote, no matter how you look at it, white Christianity has been a miserable failure. So what shall we do with this failure and with our failings? 
Is religion or is race a matter of success versus failure? Could not this success-failure binary thinking be part of the underlying issue? For Gideon, the question was a matter of representative democracy. Does democracy bring about justice? Are there limits to the kinds of justice that democracy can bring about? What kinds of justice can democracy not bring about? The limits of democracy must not be taken for granted, for it has limits. What one might assume to be the form of democracy, that is, democracy itself, could simply be one form of democracy among a host of possible forms. So justice must go beyond the limits of democracy. So I want to return to the question of lament. So part of lament is a constant return to the problem areas, and at the same time looking to areas that we might not have thought as problematic, at least for ourselves. There is, however, a danger in the problematizing, that in the attempt to resolve the problem, we still maintain a stranglehold of the conversation, that even our response, our actions, dig the hole even deeper. Could part of the problem be not just our ways of conceptualizing the problem or thinking through the problem, but the entire framework of our thought, the very atoms that make up Western thought itself? Could the contamination go that deep? A key notion that contributes to lament, and that has been either explicitly or implicitly mentioned in many of the episodes in the series, is silence. If we are to take seriously racial issues in our world, we must be prepared to be silent. Silence lets go of control of the conversation. To let others take the lead in this way would still remain distinct from the posture that says, this is their issue, not mine. Giving up a seat at the table does not amount to giving up altogether. Rather, it means letting go of the need to have the first word in every discussion. Being silent is a key step in this direction. Silence is still an active silence. It involves an act of listening, which means being with those who are suffering and who are struggling in a way that lets them be who they are. Our silence opens up a space that is not already predetermined, by white Western thinking. It resists the need to fill the silent spaces with presence of sure solutions. Such a silence seems impossible from the perspective of a discipline like philosophy, which is founded on speaking, on language, on discourse, on a truthful word. We must be open to ways in which we can help work through the question of race without letting the Western discourse have the first word. And further, to say we, in the way that it have been, might also contribute further to the issue. So through these questions, these needs, these oughts and musts, where do we find our hope? How do we keep from becoming cynical about the possibility of the future? And this is a key question that both Ron and Gideon discussed. So, as we've been saying, a crucial response is lament. Lament is always a lamenting with, whether it be with the other, with God with a nation. In lament there is grief, which differs from despair in that it stays with the damage and the suffering rather than giving up or fleeing from it. What then happens is that through lamenting with and through grieving with, hope comes about. Somehow in returning to the places of trauma and of pain and facing the problems that are found in those spaces together, healing and restoration can begin to take place. It is in that place of grieving and of lament, where all hope seems lost, that, in the suffering with, 
hope begins to take root again. I'm joined by Samir Gasanov, a junior member here at ICS in the PhD program. Hi, Samir. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is uh, uh, a great invitation and uh, what, a, what a great podcast to be responding to. So I'm a, a PhD candidate. Um, I'm working in property theory, broadly conceived, um, you know, history, jurisprudence, uh, Christian political thought. So that's, that's where I'm at. So you're here to talk to us a bit about our conversation with uh, Matt Bernico and Dean Detloff. So I thought I'd begin just by asking you, um, if you would, just briefly remind us of uh, sort of, I guess, the main issues or main topics covered in that episode in terms of how they impress themselves on you. Yeah, sure. I mean, the biggest issue probably is this this conversation about Christianity and leftist politics. So I thought it was really interesting to still in 2021 talk in terms of the left and right continuum. And then the other one is obviously Christianity and the left. Um, I assume part of the reason you've asked me to come on is because um, I'm a survivor of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So my particular experience in leftist politics or leftist politics experience is avowedly atheist. So there's this really interesting tension, I think, certainly from a you know, Western Christian perspective about how to appropriate leftist politics and religion. And then I heard them also talk about um, going back to the sources. You know, they're uh, Catholic and, and Anglican, but I haven't heard them talk about, say, Catholic social thought or, you know, the tradition of Christian political thought um, in the Anglican tradition, like people like Oliver Donovan and so on. Um, so, so it was really interesting to me, sort of in the kind of take the kind of sources that they cited or didn't cite. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, in terms of the wake of 2020, the pragmatism and coalition building, and this was on a very kind of a positive note of, you know, you may not get the candidate you want, uh, but how do you get there? And, and I really like that because um, sometimes ideological purity can really sacrifice real policy gains, which is kind of where I would want to be. Um, but, you know, for me, perhaps some of the more interesting themes were about how they talked about technology. Um, I really like that because it, it resembles very much the way I like to talk about property. Um, so you can talk about property as a, as a kind of technology. So, so those are the sorts of things that I, I heard and I, I thought they did a really fantastic job. I'm not doing it justice at all. You should really do yourself a favor, take 45 minutes and listen to the podcast. I'm wondering whether you hear any particular calls to action um, in the conversation with, with Matt and Dean, uh, whether they're calls to action to you as an individual, as, as, you know, as a person or as a, as a scholar, but also calls to action to you know, a kind of community like ICS, a sort of faith and educational community. Yeah, I mean, that challenge, that, that's, a, that's a really um, sort of hits close to the bone. Um, so I'm sort of with Leonard Cohen, you know, I'm neither left nor right. I want to stay home tonight. I think at some point he sings. I mean, can I, can I just cite a couple of examples that make me very ambivalent about this whole left right thing. And this is where this is kind of a, my oblique way of reflecting on the moment. So 
So if you consider the issue of police unions and progressive social change, really interesting dynamic. So obviously, public sector unions are an endangered um, species and typically staunch supporters of the left. But they're simply intransigent and incorrigible, despite what I think has become really incontrovertible evidence of systemic racial savagery perpetuated by their membership. Um, I mean, there's a lot more can be said about that, but let's look at some other examples of, say, BlackRock, which is you know, the largest asset manager. And climate change is central um, now to BlackRock's um, investment strategy. I mean, it, it has considerable sway with most companies represented in the S&P 500 index. And then, of course, you know, already back in 2019, before the pandemic, um, the hundreds of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies signed a statement that intended to redefine the purpose of a company in favor of what you would call, you know, stakeholder capitalism. Is this just rhetoric? Could be, but rhetoric matters. It's part of my, you know, social imaginary mythology and so on. So, so I guess, you know, it's very difficult for me um, to, to, to answer your question more directly, to think about, um, you know, kind of an activist role um, and sort of where to, to throw yourself in terms of an explicit political agenda, if you will, um, given the options on the table of the way left and right are distributed in actual policies. That's, that's very interesting. I'm just, I guess I'm just wondering if you were to put yourself in the shoes of like the leftist activist person, like how would what you're pointing to be a problem for, for that individual? You know, how, how does what you're saying become a problem for, for someone, you know, who's motivated by kind of leftist progressive politics? Well, I, I guess I would, what I would say, um, you know, we're, we're clearly at the end of the long 20th century, the kind of, uh, what did uh, Fukuyama call it, the, the end of history, the East-West ideological opposition. So that's clearly now over. Um, so I think in a way to speak at that level of generality and abstraction, I actually don't find particularly helpful. So that's why I sort of bring out um, very specific you know, policy proposals. And this is where I think the, um, the pragmatism and the coalition building, I thought, were really, really helpful. It may look really eclectic um, to sort of say, well, I like this little bit of the, of the rationale for the tax cut, and I like that little bit of the need to reform policing in America and so on. But I think an eclecticism is the obverse of an integral set of Christian political principles. So I think it behooves us to, to continue to resource, go back to the sources, and to sort of try to translate into concrete policy options what that means. But for the left person, I mean, and that's kind of, you know, uh, part of what I heard in the episode is, um, uh, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but it's a very kind of a traditional Marxist kind of a way of referring to the rules, like they talked about the liberal rules and so on, as just ideological, you know, thinly veiled ideological um, tools, I, I think that's, that's maybe too quick. I think law in the West, the rules, um, I mean, they go back to the, you know, second Christian millennium and the papal revolution. And in the vision of positive social reform, that is the explicit articulation of the gospel for the social realm. So, 
you know, with, you know, when I mean, Mike, Mike Timur and I taught the class, we go back and we try to look at capitalisms in that kind of a 900 year perspective. Um, you know, what does it mean to try to introduce the leaven of the gospel um, into, you know, uh, the second millennium, the second Christianization? Um, and that's very, very challenging. But I, but I mean, I, let me just sort of say, Andrew, so I'm really interested in um, this scholar who, uh, he's, he's dead now, but he's a South African, A.J. Vanderwalt, who uh, really pioneered a paradigm of property in the margins, um, thinking about constitutional property in the post-apartheid period, um, where the uh, peaceful transition of power in the 90s was bought at the price of that there needs to be some some systemic redistribution of of material power and and how do you do that and one way was you know his way was to talk about property and emergence that is to say you know what if we were to approach the question of property from the tenant from the eviction perspective right so so what if we focus on the marginal figures the homeless the squatters the trespassers, and how does that destabilize the paradigm and allows you access? I mean, maybe, I mean, I think I, at some point I heard Dean sort of invoke this very popular Christian image of Jesus overturning the, uh, the money changers table. I mean, that's, I, I guess I feel like that may be an image that with respect to the tradition um, would, would wield a, a sledgehammer. Um, and I think we're at a point in historical time where we may really benefit from a surgical scalpel. I'm joined now by Abby Hofstad, junior member in the MA program here at ICS, who joined me as co-host uh, for our conversation with Kristen Kobus Dume. Uh, hello, Abby. Yeah. Hi. Hi, guys. Good to be here. It's it's great to have you back with us. So I just want to start by asking you just to briefly take us back to that conversation, if you would. Yeah. So we got to cover a lot of a lot of ground in that episode. Um, it was really great to be able to talk to Kristen. So we started out by talking about uh, what evangelicalism is and what her project was. So she defines it not as a set of theological doctrines, but as more of like a broader culture. Yeah, so we kind of talked about that. We talked about the ways in which white patriarchal masculinity is like so intimately tied up in white evangelicalism. And we talked about different influences like new Calvinism, um, the ways in which our own tradition is complicit in these things. And then we kind of talked about, you know, where do we go from here? And why do we feel like we need to be the white saviors of white Christianity? And what kinds of other voices should we be listening to? Thank you. Um, so I'm wondering now, you know, in terms of Kristen's main message about uh, you know, evangelical Christianity and white militant masculinism, I'm, I'm wondering what parts of our conversation stood out as most, most significant for you? Yeah, I think one of the things that really struck me as I was listening to the interview again was just the, the need to look at the broader cultural context. So, uh, you know, evangelicalism or whatever um, doctrines we apparently hold to, those are sort of less important than the ways in which our broader culture is shaped. 
Um, and so it's, it's more of, you know, you got to read between the lines. Like she gave the example of when in the 60s, the uh, explicit messaging of evangelicalism sort of uh, switched away from race it still was like just this deep, deep subtext. So when they were talking about parental authority, for example, and getting the government out of the schools, it was actually expressing their support for segregated schools because they didn't want the government to be integrating schools. So sort of those those broader, um, I guess, underlying factors is what really struck me, just the power of the culture um, that we find ourselves in today and how that still persists and how those like deep subtexts still um, exist and sort of like rear their ugly heads. And actually, I don't even know if that's the best way to put it, because it seems like if if we're so deeply steeped in this culture, it's not something in the past. It's not something that just comes up every now and again. Like it, it's probably more foundational than that. Oh, yeah. And one other thing that I wanted to bring up was the idea of like we talked about Trump in the episode. But honestly, to me, it's like we don't even need to talk about Trump. Like we don't need to look south for these things. I mean, of course, you know, Kristen is American. So, of course, like it, it, make, it makes sense that we focused on those issues with her. Um, but I, I just wanted to like really stress again that like it is such a Canadian problem. I think we've seen with like the, you know, the terrorist attack on the Muslim family. And we've seen it with the discovery of the children at Kamloops. Um white supremacy thrives here just as much as it does south of the border. Are there ways that that these issues speak to your your own work as a as a scholar? Yeah, I think one thing that struck me again is just the way that whiteness and white supremacy is sort of the default. The white voices are the voices that get to be sort of like the default voices that we listen to. So I guess what it reinforced again for me was just the importance of listening to other voices um, and like making the space for those um, and not speaking for them, but letting them speak for themselves. Um, and so, I mean, my my work is on two old white guys <laughs> with, uh, with all due respect, but, and that is just the nature of my thesis right now. And I, I, I've been learning a lot from them and that's not to discount them at all, but there is so much more work that needs to be done and so many voices that we need to be listening to. Um, and so it's been great to hear voices from within the tradition, but that you can't stop there. Um, and so that will definitely be, you know, avenues of future work for me. So I'm wondering, lastly, what particular challenges or calls to action uh, you noticed being offered in, in what Kristen had to say? Yeah, so I really related to um, when she's talking about the, the Calvinist or like the reformed influences on this patriarchal white militant masculinity that's so apparent in white evangelicalism. So she was like, you know, this is, this is, they took this Bible verse um, and it meant this beautiful, open, grace-filled thing to me and to like her professors. And, they, you know, they took it and used it at one of these universities that is just a bastion of white evangelicalism. And she's like, well, that's, that's not my Calvinism. Like, that's not what it means to me. Or is it? And she asked that question. And I think that question really resonates with me. It's like, to what extent is this culture foundational? And how do you separate religion from culture? And can you? And I think that was a big revelation for me during my undergrad was just the way that like, again, white Christianity and Western Christianity is sort of default Christianity. And like the fact that it is not neutral, it is always informed by cultural values. 
And I just had never thought, I just thought, oh, you know, Christianity is Christianity. It's like the same. We all should, you should believe these certain set of doctrines in order to call yourself a Christian. And um, I realize now just how wrong that was <laughs> um, and how, how, how it's so much more than that. And um, we really need to, I think, critically interrogate that. And she, she really, I think, calls us to that in her book as well. So yeah, so for myself, I, I've been sort of wrestling with this. What is the relationship between these beautiful sort of grace-filled, um, covenant-based ideas that come out of the reformational tradition versus this sort of like legalistic, militaristic, white supremacist, patriarchal tradition that sort of runs parallel? And, and how do you not just cherry pick, like she said, not just cherry pick the good things. Um, how do you honor what is good um, and what comes from God? But how do you sort of acknowledge that there is elements of this culture that have been oppressing people and still are oppressing people to this day um, and causing great harm? And how do we change that? Yeah, so that that's kind of like for me personally. And then for ICS is just thinking about um, how has ICS been formed and shaped by this sort of cultural matrix of whiteness? How do we see ourselves in relation to this culture? And do we imagine that we could be immune to these sorts of things when like this is the very foundation of the country that we are a part of? Um, I think we've seen again and again recently just the ways in which like white supremacy is still so, so present in our culture. And I think another thing that I was thinking about is the idea she kind of brought up, the idea that we don't need to defend the brand. So just like be willing to sort of take criticism and and not feel like defensive about it, which is really hard. But I think that's also really important because if we truly want to change and really address these like deeper, deeper cultural issues, then yeah, we we don't we don't have to worry about defending the name of ICS, um, that's, I don't know, that's reassuring to me. Like there, there are so many voices out there that we are and slash could be listening to. I'd now like to welcome Danielle Yet and Mark Standish, who you know as members of the Critical Faith team. Danielle is communications coordinator here at ICS, as well as an ICS alumna, and Mark is currently in the doctoral program at ICS. And Danielle and Mark are going to share their thoughts about our conversation with Sherry DeNovo. Hello, Danielle and Mark. Hello, Andrew and Danielle. Howdy. <laughs> uh, take it away. Well, I'll take the first stab at it. So Sherry came in and she told us her role in the NDP um, up until 2017. And she told us primarily about her new book, The Queer Evangelist, in which she outlines kind of her journey coming to faith as a minister, as a queer minister in Toronto, and uh, what her evolving understanding of evangelism became as she journeyed. Danielle, do you have anything that I missed? No, I think that summarizes where she went with her episode. Um in terms of, I guess, what you said, I think the thing that stood out to me the most about what she said when she was going through kind of this whole litany of, you know, positions that she's had and uh, callings and activities that she's like engaged in, which are all 
you know, fairly different from each other. You don't tend to think of politicians and ministers as uh, cut from the same cloth often. Um, but I think what stood out to me was how so much of what she was doing and what she talked to us about was trying to find like homes for people who set themselves up as or find themselves as uh, outsiders and what it would what it means to kind of build and fight for and cultivate homes for outsiders of various kinds. And that seemed to be what she was doing in, you know, her work on policy, on, you know, for rights for queer people in Canada, and definitely what she's doing at a practical level, you know, in leading and ministering to people in the community of the church that she's in. Um, and in her activist work as well. So that was kind of what stood out to me. Was there anything else that stood out to you aside from what you were listing? Yeah, um, I I was struck. I remember talking to Andrew afterwards um, and thinking about the her um, the coincidence of uh, reform and revolution, and I just uh, like thinking through that and how those two can coexist. And I'm not sure, like, I I completely know, um, <laughs> which, I mean, maybe it's not for me to know exactly so clearly. <laughs> yeah, because I think that they have different senses of time almost. Like, on the one hand, the revolution is uh, timeless, you know? It, it's a moment. It's a, like a thing that happens. It's messianic in a sense. And then the reform is stretched out time that like takes a long time as things like don't change and you don't realize it, I guess, um, when they're changing underneath the surface. Um, so it just, it strikes me that though those things and they, they work in practice. Um, and then it's up to us to find a way to see how they work in theory. I feel like my, uh, my history professor in undergrad would be very proud of me for harping on the uh, reform and revolution bit now. <laughs> um, I think you need, I think you need both. I don't know, like, because you think of reform and the way that she described reform, which I think she worked a lot as a politician toward reform, but uh, reform has moments of like revolutionary moments mm -hmm. where, you know, things suddenly change mm -hmm. after all of that kind of, you know, long and semi-invisible work. Um, and so like the moments that she was described, the moment she was describing of, you know, achieving this policy for the rights of queer people in Canada, like that's a revolutionary moment, but came about from reform. And like after the fact, the ongoing work is reform work because you still have to change, you know, mindsets and stances and how people like you know relate to the fact that this has changed and what it means to like instantiate this policy these policies and stuff so i think they go together but maybe that's not the point you were trying to make no like i think that i think that we're touching on the same things like i i think maybe my understanding of revolution is too like pure that like <laughs> we might have to think of of uh partial revolutions and because in a sense that that is a revolution, but it's within the same like framework that the reform is happening in. It's not like an entire paradigm shift, 
but maybe that's kind of what like Jesus shows us revolution is in in terms of like a now but not yet type thing like it is a paradigm shift but it's not um because we're still operating in the same world I think that was something that stood out to me from what she said too like she was the ways in which she was critical of the left were kind of on that purest point where the default is it's all or nothing and only all is good enough where she i think realizes at a practical level like all the work that she did you know how did she put it like work reaching across the aisle um and making these kind of coalition changes happen like that the foundation of that is compromise so you can't be all or nothing um so things like you know like you said like partial revolution like that does move things forward and i think that was what she had a very firm grasp has a very firm grasp of is that that's not compromise in a bad way mm. right like you're not compromising yourself by learning how to move things forward with other people mm. Mm. so how did this episode like speak to your own philosophical thinking and your own uh philosophical work uh, I think for me, that's a hard question because if I'm looking at the actual specifics of what my philosophical work is or has been, it's arts and aesthetics and very niche, somewhat Christian language. But I think what draws me to that are very general things. So in at the general level, it's easy for me to kind of see some some connection points. And I think this this question of how do you get people to open up and to be open to change and to things that are not familiar to them. That was very much a lot of what I got from what Sherry talked about. She's very much drawn toward actually making stuff like that happen um, and getting people to see things in ways that they might not have before and not necessarily in a way that does like violence to where they come from if they are the ones that need to change like mm. but in a way that somehow also comes from within as much as it comes from without like the changing laws in order to like change lives kind of thing that she said um it is a balance between both creating the structure that makes that change of mind and heart possible but also like you as, as a pastor like she's working with people's hearts and minds, not just the policies and stuff. And those are all very much interesting topics to me. Um, but what about you? What what stood out to you for your philosophy? So I am, am, am broadly in political philosophy, looking at um, political borders and borders broader than what we typically think of as political borders. And what struck me was uh, her depiction of of the church at least the church as she would like it to be and i think a lot about whether or not there should be borders and it strikes me that that borders do serve like a a function without borders i don't know if you can have a home and to create a home in the church you there's a sense in which like borders have to be set up um that otherwise like you can't you can't sit down without uh, feeling uh, like you have to look over your shoulder. 
So it struck me that like that kind of rang true with with Sherry's depiction of the church as being this place that is kind of like dedicated to a sole purpose and the purpose is itself and you can see that like when she's comparing the church to the activist group where like the activist group has a particular goal in mind and because it has that goal that is beyond itself it people need to find homes outside of that they need to find a place where they where the goal is itself and the church can fill that role and that it strikes me that like you do need these spaces that have different reasons for being and those are set up by borders at least borders in a sense obviously she's not advocating and i'm not advocating for like a isolation or a insulation uh so what kind of challenges or calls to action did you hear in the episode? What did you feel in terms of challenges to you and to ICS and ICS community more broadly? To me, I think the thing that I found, I guess it's in retrospect now that I have found it challenging. Somehow I've had a lot of Southern Baptist Convention news be coming on to my Twitter feed. And the thing that I've been thinking a lot about was it's it's just it's such a fragile thing, any real instance of people coming together across differences to work toward mm. a common goal or to work toward change of things. And so like this convention was also an example of that. But I feel like the whole year has kind of made me realize that and in the spirit of this series. That's <laughs> maybe my learning from the year. Um, that it's so rare when people actually do that kind of thing and don't fall into becoming like defensive mm. or just like re entrenching themselves into things or become so belligerent toward what exists that, you know, they just burn it all down and there's nothing good here. Like, it's so hard for people to come together and see the good that exists if there is any in a common project. So that's, I guess the chat in terms of the challenge that I heard from, from her was, you know, that it does happen. Like mm. the things that she was talking about were very much, she was very much trying to emphasize that, you know, these things do actually happen. They're not just pie in the sky uh, ideals and whatever um, that, differences can be overcome for the sake of, you know, not just yourself, but like the greater good to use that as a phrase. Um, and then I guess just the challenge is to like look harder for instances when that does happen and to like learn from them and champion them and, you know, counter whatever fatalist, more fatalist narrative is running around in my head right now. Um, and then I guess in terms of the challenge to ICS, I think it's always worth us asking, and I think this is what ICS does and has done, you know, and has always been kind of preoccupied by it some to some degree, is to continue to ask ourselves like how one has an outsider stance. Mm. Because we like to navigate 
the waters of like, oh, we're critical, but not, you know, purestly critical in a way that we ever think that we're outside of the thing. You're always embedded in the context in which you're in and the histories and like all this stuff. So we're always kind of dancing around the like insider outsider uh, stuff um, in the various work that people at ICS do. And I think it's just, it's always worth asking ourselves, you know, how do we see ourselves as outside of certain things and certain groups and, you know, what ways are we not outsiders, even though we think we are maybe. And, you know, do we think that that makes us better than people? And, you know, I'm not saying that we, everyone thinks we're better than everyone, but, you know, it's always worth asking whenever you set yourself up as an outsider, like, are you doing that in order to set yourself up over whoever is not the outsider? Um, and that's very easy kind of temptation to fall into, I think. And so it's always worth looking at. Hmm. What about you? Yeah, like for, for me uh, um, personally, I think like one of the things that struck me was that like Sherry, like what she did, Sherry described was that like activism is a process of just like keep, you got to keep going. Um, even if it doesn't feel like there is change. Mm. Um that is happening and the outlook looks pretty bleak um and in my own community in hamilton i feel that um pretty strongly that like everything seems um set up to just uh reify the status quo um and that there there's not a way out of um the paradigm that we're in um and i was encouraged by sherry to keep doing the work of uh trying to uh reshape my community so yeah that's on, that's the personal side and then for the ics side and this kind of connects to my own work too um because i work in phenomenology and phenomenology uh is about returning returning to uh the beginning and one of the things that I was struck by, which I've already mentioned, is that the like the church needs to maintain its self-focus, um, and that is it's it's focused as itself as a loving community that exists for um, community's sake, um, and uh, I think that like we have to continually return to that purpose and evaluate whether or not we're actually achieving the purpose and beyond that like sure there are many purposes that the church has but that in enacting or affecting different purposes that we don't lose sight of the the starting point and the what should be the focal point of um our churches I'm now joined by Kevin Hunick, Executive Director of Karen Christian School in West Niagara, who's here to offer his thoughts on our episode about education after 2020 with Edith Vanderboom. Kevin is also an alumnus of ICS, and he's recently been appointed to the ICS Board of Directors, so he's very much a friend to the ICS community. Um, Kevin, so welcome here. It's great to have you uh, on Critical Faith. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, so I thought I'd begin by just asking you to tell us a bit about yourself. Um, I guess, first of all, your connection to ICS, and then secondly, say a bit about your role, your current role um, at uh, Karen Christian School. 
Yeah, so just recently uh, became involved again with the ICS as an analyst for uh, one of the MAEL courses and was reminded how much uh, I love this institution, uh, how much I love interacting with the, uh, the classes. Um, it's been a while. Uh, 2011, I graduated with my, um, my master's degree from ICS. Uh, philosophy of education, and uh, uh, since then um, have just uh, watched ICS and, and some of the work that's uh, that's gone in. I'm just super excited about uh, the new MA program for educational leadership, uh, especially from my seat. Uh, I'm currently the executive director of Cairn Christian School, which operates two uh, kindergarten through grade eight campuses, one in Stony which Creek. is a section of uh, the city of Hamilton and one in Smithville, uh, which is more rural community uh, in West Niagara. A an interesting school as it pertains to some of our discussion this morning. Uh, one is being a rural location, um, a, a little bit uh, less diverse, um, probably a lot more white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, uh, just by nature of the demographics in the region. And the other one being um, a borough of the uh, city of Hamilton is much more diverse um, so we see uh, see some of these conversations about uh, belonging, inclusion, and diversity playing themselves out uh, sometimes in very much the same way in both schools, in some ways very differently. So it's a it's a unique perspective uh, to be a head of school in um, in these two contexts, and uh, I would say a, a a blessing and an honor. So. So we're here to talk a bit about uh, the conversation that we had previously on critical faith with Edith Vanderboom. So I'm just wondering, Kevin, what are one or two key issues that you that you hear in that episode being raised by Edith um, that, you know, that jumped out as, as particularly important to you? Yes, I, it was fascinating listening to Edith. I've known her as a colleague in Christian schools for a number of years, uh, very much as a champion of differentiated instruction. And I was um, I was just really encouraged to hear her kind of root that in her own experience. Um, so many educators uh come about their craft and about their their research passions through their own experience in education and uh, that came to light in that episode uh when she was speaking about belonging and inclusion this has been very much a focus uh, of our headspace at karen christian school and across christian schools in ontario uh, for a number of years uh, it, it's one thing to include students uh, who, who may have special needs or who learn differently. Uh, and that, of course, branches out into uh, how do you um, include students who are from a different uh, race, a different background, a different denomination. When she spoke of belonging, especially uh, when it related to special needs students, uh, kids who typically would have been removed from the classroom, uh, for instruction and then put back in and her desire uh, for differentiated instruction, which would have students, of course, learning the same thing, but perhaps with a different set of expectations, a different choice of assignment uh, of a way of engaging uh, that would better align with their gifts and abilities. For me, it helps us to understand that inclusion is one thing, but to have someone belong is an entirely different thing. Uh, someone has penned this as, uh, um, when we include you, uh, you're welcome to be there. 
when you belong, we miss you when you are not. So how do we how do we craft our classrooms and our pedagogy so that we do miss students who aren't there? When we get a true culture of belonging, I think initially we set these these ideals up as we want to benefit the student who doesn't typically belong. But in the end, we shouldn't be surprised, but I am continually, that the benefit to the entire culture of the classroom just skyrockets. Um, a really quick story that a paraeducator shared with me, she watched just aghast as the teacher was teaching a lesson. And for one student, um, she needed the, the material to be adapted to her abilities. She was not capable of doing the full scope of an assignment. And the EA and the teacher had uh, had forgotten to adapt her material for her for that lesson. And the EA watched as two of the boys in their class sidled up and said, oh, no, no, hold on. You, you don't have to do this. To and after years of watching the educators adapting her assignments for her, these two guys did it for their peer. Oh, no, 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 you're in our group. You, you do this and this and this instead. We'll do this and you do that. And then you're learning in your way. And it was just a beautiful picture of what belonging really looked like. These kids were doing the work of a paraeducator and a teacher in making sure that their, um, their classmate belonged. I guess to keep the conversation focused on how Edith's comments speak to your own experience in education, I'm, I'm just wondering how our conversation with Edith spoke to issues that you yourself have been thinking about in terms of education and, and you know, systemic racism or other systemic forms of, of oppression. I, I loved her example, and I cringed at her example of uh, the Egyptian students in her school. And uh, how, how often do we do things that are well-intentioned? We, we think we're doing the right thing, but in not listening first, we're doing things to someone as opposed to with. Um, understanding systemic racism begins alongside an, a posture of listening. And that's coming to a real head in one of my schools, um, actually both. Their themes this past year, one, uh, they were both based in Psalm 139, uh, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, we're known, we're deeply known not only by uh, our creator, but when we are known by one another, we are Christ to one another. And uh, two, two quick examples, the school that had the, the theme of known just began its year by asking questions of each family in a more racially diverse community. Um, what language do you speak at home? How do you say hello? And even something simple like that became a, uh, uh, a physical representation. It became our hello wall in the school. And across that wall were 20 different languages and kids as they entered the school and exited the school could see and point out their language. That's how we say hi. That's my, that's my hello. The students themselves could see that they were known and listened to. In my other school, we have a, a, a family who is uh, of indigenous background. Dad has, uh, has a background and experience with a residential school. Mum herself went to a Christian school growing up and 
just has really committed to sharing her culture and her story um, and her and her people's story. And it's a challenge for us to stop and just really honor and listen, because uh, along with that comes an admission that we're we're releasing control. And I'm just I'm so honored by a family who not only is walking with us in saying we want to send our kids to your school, um, but also honored that they want to share their background and their culture and their story with us um, as much as they can. And um, um, how do we teach uh, residential schools? How do we teach our, our, our history? What parts are we missing? And how do we tell those stories? And who do we listen to um, when we're reading those stories or hearing those stories? Um, so again, the, the posture of with and listening is so key to this idea of belonging and inclusion. So again, back to back to Edith, I'm, I'm so grateful for these themes as they interweave and interplay, uh, not only in our pedagogy, but how do we decide what we teach? How do we decide how we teach it? And how do we assume a posture of humility institutionally as teachers, as, as, as administrators of the school to make sure that this is no longer a school that does something to students, but that we're doing this with students and with others. So, in, you know, in that spirit, and, and again, in, in light of what Edith had to say, I'm wondering what particular hopes or concerns you might have for a community of higher learning um, such as um, ICS. This is a really interesting question to me, and this is, uh, I'll just, I think, get a little bit personal here that um, sometimes I feel complicit in some of the systems just by becoming involved. So I struggle, I, I struggle with that because uh, I want to look around uh, and see our institutions grow in their diversity. So how do now I enter in and listen? How do I make the pains and injustices of the past not a responsibility of those who have been harmed by them to correct? Um, how do I do the hard work of understanding what reconciliation has to happen? Yet, if I enter, and this would be my encouragement for the ICS or any institution of education, development, learning, how do we take seriously how we're changing and shaping and forming lives moving forward? And I don't have a very distinct, specific roadmap forward necessarily other than continuing to listen and just, I think, even being aware of that deep responsibility understanding that as we teach others about our craft or our area of expertise um, that we are changing minds and lives and transforming people and as we say in our in our schools often um, if we expect this of our students we better as a faculty be modeling that first so as i become more involved again with the ICS. That would be my continued prayer. I'm encouraged by what I see and I'm, I'm encouraged by this conversation. 
uh, I'm encouraged by uh, a vulnerable and a humble posture within the Christian faith that's willing to listen and maybe take some of its blinders off. And I know there's a struggle currently societally uh, to draw lines, to build walls. Uh, which party do you align with? Uh, where? Wh what's your position on this topic? And I'm finding so many of my conversations with others begin with questions like that. How can I categorize you in the way you think? And how, how can we change some of those conversations to be more healthily gray? It takes very, very hard work. Uh, in our communities to convince people that entertaining thoughts that you might not have originally said were your own is really, really important. So digging our heels in and saying, this is the way it is. Um, it's probably the wrong starting point. How do we, how do we begin with the posture of listening uh, so that we begin to understand one another and maybe even sometimes living in the discomfort that Maybe there is disagreement, but we can do beautiful work together still, even though we don't see eye to eye. Joining me now is Hector Acero Ferrer, a member of the Critical Faith Podcast team and Associate Director of the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics here at ICS. Hello, Hector. Hey, Andrew. Uh, you and I are responding to our conversation with Jonathan Hamilton Dybo, and he, he's Assistant Professor at Emmanuel College, uh, where he teaches courses in, in a variety of areas related to Indigenous history and, and theology, and he's also at Emmanuel a Special Advisor on Indigenous Issues. And he spoke to us a lot about his work at uh, First Nations House at the University of Toronto, um, as well as his work on the steering committee for the U of T's response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and its calls to action. Um, so Jonathan spoke to us about, about a lot, and, and I, I really enjoyed that conversation. I, I thought it was a great episode. Um, I just, just I'll start just by asking you, you know, what part of the of the interview seemed most significant to you? Like, what's what stood out to you in terms of what Jonathan had to say to us? I think that one of the elements of his interview that that resonated with me the most wasn't a, a specific aspect of it, but that everything was weaved into his responses in a kind of holistic way. That he he himself advocates for that. He is trying to force us throughout the interview not to fracture things, not to dislocate things, to not to do the kind of things that we are taught to do in the academic context, but to bring them together. And and he's trying to tell us a story, the story of his own life um, as a practitioner, as a member of a community, as, um, um, as an academic. And in the middle of all of these, he is he's given us so much information about how to interact with the reality of indigeneity in the academic context, how to interact with indigenous communities in a city like Toronto, and how those two overlap. So for me, it was, it was really interesting philosophically to see no, not the what, but the how, how that process took place. What about you, Andrew? What do you find like, particularly relevant to the episode? Well, this is one thing in particular. There's a lot. There's a lot that I that I found really interesting in what Jonathan had to say, and it's kind of related to 
what you said there about the how as opposed to the what. Like, I, I mean, I'll be honest, part of what made me eager to hear from Jonathan w- was to, to get some advice on how to position myself as a, as a white person, you know, as a settler in Canada, um, wanting to, to respond to these calls to action um, in the context of education, you know, in the right way. And a couple of things I found really helpful that, that contributed to a kind of general point that Jonathan made about the kind of posture that someone like someone like me as a white person should have in, in this context. When there's sort of two sides, like one thing Jonathan said was, it's up to us, you know, it's up to settler Canadians to take the lead in reconciliation. You know, and I thought I found that really in- interesting. Um, that th- there's a significant d- degree to which you know we should take initiative. We shouldn't just wait for to be told what to do. Like this is something that's been spoken about a lot. You know, uh, so there's ample resources for us to take initiative in, in this process. On the other hand, though, it's it's not a process that we as settler Canadians are are guiding. You know, he said that. In terms of how this actually looks, in terms of what the conversation looks like, in terms of what actual actions are, are taken up, um, that's something that Indigenous communities themselves should take the lead in, in guiding. So I found that very helpful advice in terms of taking initiative in, in you know, building relationships and starting conversations, but sort of taking a kind of backseat in terms of what this actually looks like. Um, that, that, that struck me as especially important and as especially interesting. And also, like, related to that was how he said, you know, Sometimes the, the, the language surround, surrounding solutions um, seems to imply that there's like one great indigenous community, and which is to say there's also one great solution that's going to reconcile things. And he, and he kind of did a lot to debunk that, that idea. Like there's, there's many, many, many different indigenous communities. So there's going to be many, many, many different kinds of solutions and many different kinds of conversations that we have to have. Um, uh, so, so that aspect too, I think is, I think is important. Um, so I, I'm wondering also if there are ways that our conversation with Jonathan spoke to your own philosophical thinking or, or your own work as a thinker, Hector. It really had so much within it, but I will say maybe within the context of political philosophy, we, we tend to approach philosophical reflection within political philosophy, um, trying to reduce our analysis to the basic unit of the individual entering into a political space. But he shifts that. He he's forcing us to see the basic unit of philosophical reflection as the relationship, not the individual. So it is all these relationships uh, that happen at the ground level that end up building that political landscape that we need to reflect upon as philosophers. So I, to me, that was the first item that I thought was really revealing of even how his practice has affected his own thinking and how it can teach something to people like us starting that that, that journey in, in political philosophy. Um, and the other part of it is, again, going back to the holistic approach to really commit to the interdisciplinarity of philosophy. So it is not just about assuming that philosophy can take from other disciplines and nourish its own scholarly body, but it needs to really enter into relationship with other disciplines to to become the philosophy that we need now to respond to the problems that that we are facing uh, as a society. So, to me, that those two calls and those two kind of pushbacks from him are what I what I take away with me. And the fact that he does it, like he performs that, is also important to me. Not just that he's telling us to do that, but through his uh, interview, I was seeing how he 
through his own cadence, through the elements that he was bringing from his own history, his own community, he was shifting our own questions into into the ways in which they should be answered for for them to be relevant to a community beyond the Western uh, academic community that we are used to. There, there is academy beyond that, but what does that academy look like? What does that philosophy look like? And and we saw a little bit of that through the way in which he interacted with us. Yeah, I got that sense as well. Um, and I, I, I recall very gently by Jonathan being being redirected to, to where, where he thought the conversation should go after I asked my questions. And, you know, you know my, my own thinking in response to the, my conversation with Jonathan in terms of philosophical thinking sort of moved along those lines. Because for me, the conversation struck me not not really at a philosophical level, but at, at the level of me as a philosophical thinker. And I think the thing that I'm taking away from that conversation most especially is the fact that this conversation about Canada and Indigenous communities is not first and foremost about ideas. And, you know, so at one point in the interview, I, you know, Jonathan had some very helpful things to say about the idea of multiculturalism, which is something that I asked him about because it's something that I will be teaching about. So I'm interested in that idea. Um, but I think at, an, at another point, I sort of asked him very generally about political ideas or philosophical ideas. And, you know, he brought up history and he brought up material injustices. And I think if I recall correctly, um, in response to that question, he brought up the history of residential schools and the fact that so many communities don't have access to clean drinking water. And so in the context of, of our series here, which is about political thinking and, and faithful Christian thinking in the wake of 2020, this conversation was really helpful in, in moving us I guess, deeper than thinking and towards the actual material historical realities that, that are the context of our thinking. And I found Jonathan really encouraging us to think at that level, you know, beneath the level of subject matter and at the level of building relationships. So that's something that I'm, you know, going to take with me moving forward is as an educator wanting to think about these things, like how, how can I pursue that at, at a level that's not just at the level of ideas, but is actually at the level of, of you know, making relationships with people, um, who've been at work teaching, teaching these things already, you know, who, who around me can I reach out to who have been teaching in the context of indigenous communities that I should, you know, bring into the conversation. And I guess, lastly, um, I'm wondering what particular calls to action you, you heard in our conversation with Jonathan, you know, to you yourself or to the ICS community. I was really struck by, and maybe I need to give a little bit of context for this. We recorded the episode before the discovery of the 215 bodies of children in the Kamloops uh, residential school. But I listened to the recording after uh, what had happened to prepare for this answer. And I was struck by the number of times that he said that to us already, that he reminded us that we had not been listening to the information that survivors are giving us because it is containing reports, because it was something that only affected the indigenous communities. And I resonated with that because it may be because of being from a place that, that is like a war-torn country like Colombia, I am I'm already doing the math in my head when I am listening to those stories of survivors of there are three children missing here and there were four missing here and I went to school with this many and they they uh, disappeared throughout the process. Then in my mind, it is just natural that at some point we are going to find the bodies of those children. Um, so I am on board with the outrage about the findings, 
but not with the surprise because this should not be surprising to us. We have been told about this by the survivors. So to me, the surprise means we did not believe them. Uh, we only believe ourselves when we found the bodies, but we did not believe the stories that we were told during the truth and reconciliation process. And that is exactly what he told us throughout the episode. Like, it's, it's unbelievable the number of times that he says, you know, people don't really listen to these stories. They they get shelved away and the survivors tell the stories and only those who are affected by the stories are listening to the stories. So to me, the call to action, which is also something that I've been like wrestling with a lot philosophically is making audible those stories. Like, how do we make those stories audible philosophically? How can we train our ears philosophically to listen to it? And and I kind of want to push back when in all those contexts in which then the material reality or then the considerations that are political or social become non-philosophical. I I believe that they are philosophical considerations. That there is as, there is something about the history of ideas that that help to develop the residential schools. So there is something about the history of ideas that needs to attack that and, and react to that and, and, and provide new alternatives as we move forward, as we hopefully at some point we are able to reconcile and heal and, and lament all of these things that are happening. And to me, like he's already given us a lot of the hints of what to do in the process. And one of them is returning to the stories, is listening to the stories that we've been told before by the survivors and not just listening to them, but knowing that we need to attune ourselves philosophically to hear what the stories are really telling us at a, at a, a theoretical level, not just as a, a, at, a, at a basic kind of grassroots, this is what happened on the ground level. And as a, as a philosophical school in Canada, ICS is called to do that because we are in the land that has that issue, that is responding to that. And Another example of, of that listening power that philosophy can have is in his own process in the Eastern Committee of the University of Toronto um, that responded to the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Calls for Action. He said, you know, we, we created this, this space for all of these findings to be shared, to be, uh, to be processed, to be applied somehow to how the university is run and how the university treats people, indigenous and non-indigenous. Um, but we created these categories to listen and we realized throughout the process that the categories weren't enough, that we were going to be deaf to something if we didn't open up another category, which was a category about space. Um, so it, it just goes to show us that the categories through which we already do the listening are not enough and they are making us deaf to some things. And to me, again, another big takeaway from for, for me personally, but I, I think that this is applicable to our institution um, and the tradition within which it sits. I really appreciate that your point there a few moments earlier, Hector, about how you know the material and historical real- realities uh, surrounding conversations about indigenous communities like are in a sense they are about ideas because it's it's ideas that allowed you know something like the residential schools to to take shape. Like that was as much about a kind of ideology as it was about an actual practice. So. I think that what you point out is a, a really helpful challenge to, to those of us, 
you know, as individuals and as a, as a community who traffic in ideas, right, as a philosophical school, like, how can we recognize that point and adapt our way of dealing with ideas to suit that reality, right, to suit the fact that, you know, teaching, teaching philosophical concepts is, is never just about that. And that's, that's certainly something that I'm, that I'm taking on board for myself as, as a challenge for someone, uh, you know, teaching philosophy. Um, it's also really interesting, as you point out, how, like, I think Jonathan used, used the language of, of the truth and reconciliation striking a chord, but he also talked about how, you know, it was the same chord was struck by the, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples that came out in 1996. And, and, then, and then something new and shiny came along, as he said, and, and that was sort of lost in terms of its, its you know, the awareness surrounding it. Um, and now the, the discovery at Kamloops and other discoveries is striking a, a chord again. And, and I think you're right, like you get the sense from Jonathan that like for people like him, it's been the same chord. And it's not a, it's not a chord that, it, you know, the sound doesn't, doesn't, go away, you know, for, for, for others, you know, it's this kind of ebb and flow of these, of these crises or these discoveries, but for, for indigenous communities, it's the same thing throughout. And I, I mean, I guess somewhat related to that, like one thing that, that struck me as a, as particularly challenging was the idea, as Jonathan said, that, you know, including other voices sometimes gets framed as adding another chair, putting another chair around the table. And he said, reality is such that sometimes giving the chair to someone else means giving your chair away. And so there's an element of sacrifice involved in actually being actually uh, inclusive as opposed to just being inclusive, you know, in name. Um, so something I, I, I'm going to continue to think about is like, how, how can I adopt that kind of attitude, you know, where I am in, in my position? I don't think it means like just stepping out and doing nothing. But I think, especially as an as a educator, as, as someone working in philosophy, I think it means doing those things in a way that decenters my, my voice and, and allows other voices to, you know, to have center stage, as it were. That's it for our show this week, and that's it for this series, The Wake of 2020. If you're interested in learning more about the remote courses ICS will be offering this fall, like Pragmatism, Race, and Religion with Ron Kuypers, or my course, After Multiculturalism, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. And you can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aras, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu to register or to ask any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith@icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at Mark Standish, and you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. So from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, 
You can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends 